morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to be here. I'm actually writing a commentary on the book of Joel with a few other minor prophets as well, but I've never, never actually preached on Joel before. Now, the commentary's meant to help pastors to preach on the book, so I felt a bit of a fraud writing a commentary for pastors to preach on Joel if I've never actually preached on it myself. Uh, so when Hans offered the chance to preach here for a couple of weeks, I thought, ah, this is my opportunity. Um, so uh, I'd appreciate any feedback that you have, and so other pastors would too. So if there's things that aren't clear or you'd like further explanation, please come and talk to me afterwards um, before I publish it. <laughs> anyway, let's pray that we'll hear what God has to say to us uh, through this book today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we um, thank you that we can gather together this morning and hear from this ancient book uh, from the prophet Joel as they endured the disaster that was the, the locust plague. Uh, we pray that we might hear what you have to say to us today uh, through the various uh, disasters that uh, we experience in our lives. Um, Father, we pray that... Um, yeah, that we'll not only hear what you have to say, but act appropriately and live our lives in the light of your reality, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a question that I'd like us to think about this morning is whether God uses disasters to speak to people today. We've experienced all kinds of disasters recently, haven't we? Um, the devastating floods this year. Uh, just when people had cleared up from the floods earlier in the year, those on the floodplains, many of them suffered again. Uh, their houses being uh, wiped out, destroyed, the community being thrown, uh, thrown uh, on each other's mercies. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's so devastating. Uh, of course, all this is against the backdrop of the the bigger disaster that's gone around the world, the disaster of COVID. Um, does God use these kinds of disasters to say anything to people today? Now, the, I've put up the PowerPoint. Uh, there was an article in Christianity, Christianity Today back in 2020. If we can get the PowerPoint up. There we go. Yes, um, so this article in Christianity Today, an American publication, confidently said, no, COVID-19 is not the judgment of God. COVID-19 is natural. It wasn't a supernatural disaster. And so there's nothing to hear from God here. Uh, disasters, they, things like this just happen in the world uh, today and we've just got to move on. Now, is that right? Is that right? That's what I'd like us to think about this morning as we look at the book of Joel. Because one of the things we see in the book of Joel is that disaster says a lot. The people in Joel's day, uh, as Willard reminded us with those uh, pictures and the, the graphic, they'd experienced such a devastating locust plague. It had stripped the land bare. It had caused immense grief and suffering. But Joel saw in that plague 
that God was saying something to his people. And that message was, turn back to me. Turn back to me before an even greater judgment comes. And that's what we'll see in Joel. We know very little about the prophet Joel. Uh, If you translate his name from Hebrew to English, it means Yahweh is God. So he bears witness to Israel's God, Yahweh, who revealed himself to the people at Sinai, who saved them out of Egypt. Yahweh is God, is the name Joel. We learn in verse 1 that his father is Pethuel, but we don't learn about Joel or Pethuel from other parts of the Old Testament. We don't know exactly when Joel prophesied either. There's no dates in his book to help us. Often with prophetic books, right up the front of the book, the prophet is dated with reference to Israel's kings or the kings of Judah or the kings even of uh, Persia, King Darius, for the case of Haggai and Zechariah. But there's, there's no clues in the book as to when Joel actually prophesied. There's enemy nations that are mentioned in Joel chapter 3, But these were traditional enemies of Israel that troubled Israel for long periods of their history. The only thing in the book that helps us to locate it is the fact that it's mentioned that the temple is operating in Jerusalem until the locust plague strikes anyway. Um, And this must mean that it happened sometime before the temple was destroyed The temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586, 587 BC, so the 6th century. So Joel could have been before that period. But then about 70 years later, the temple is rebuilt in 515 BC, at the end of the 6th century. And so most scholars would say that the book of Joel is after the temple has been reconstructed in that what's called the post-exilic period. However, it's Joel's location in the minor prophets. There's 12 minor prophets, which in the Jewish Bible are called the Book of the Twelve, the Book of the Twelve Minor Prophets. And Joel is right up the beginning of the minor prophets. Uh, It goes Hosea, who's the first of the minor prophets, Joel, Amos. And sandwiched between Hosea and Amos would place Joel a lot earlier in the 8th century BC. But the simple fact is we don't know. There's no dates in the book. But whatever location he he was from, his book speaks across the generations. His book goes across time. And there's many times in Israel's history when they would have suffered locusts. And those locusts were a message from God to return to him. We see right up front in the book that the people have just experienced a locust plague so devastating that even the old folks in the community have no memory of something being so bad. They can't kind of say, well, back when I was a lad or back when I was a lass, you know, that didn't happen. This was worse than anything in living memory. Look at verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children. 
Let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. So what has happened is so devastating, it's going to be told uh, from generation to generation. And as we've been reminded about in the children's talk, locust plagues cause devastation and they continue to do so in many parts of our world today, particularly in Africa. The swarms strip crops, destroying potential food for the community. Let me uh, continue to read the description of the locust and uh, see the devastation that it's caused. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. So there's swarm after swarm. Whatever was left has been eaten by the next swarm. If there's anything left, then that would be eaten too. Wave upon wave of locusts has stripped the land bare. Verse 5, wake up you drunkards, weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine, wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It's stripped off their bark, thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, like those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers, grieve for the wheat, the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up, the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate, the palm, the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. See, this locust is devastating. It's like like the damage that a lion might do with its fangs and its teeth. It's devastated the land. It's so devastating that there's not even any produce left for the priests to go about their worship in the temple where they would offer up the produce of the land as thank offerings. And these were, in Israel's history, times for worship, times for joy, times for celebration, times for feasting. But this worship has dried up. Worship has been put on hold because there's no produce to offer to the Lord. There's only mourning, grief. The priests, the farmers, the vine growers, the elders, all who live in the land are caught up in the consequences of this great disaster. What is happening here? Well, in order to understand the significance of the locust plagues, we need to put this prophet into the bigger story of the Old Testament and God's history of his dealings with his people. The ancient Israelites were in a special relationship with Yahweh, Israel's God. God saved them out of Egypt, gave them a special land to live in, but he also revealed his character to his people, gave them his word, told them how to live as his saved people in the laws that were given through Moses. And Moses spelled out in the book of Deuteronomy 
that the people, if they wanted to live in a blessed relationship with the Lord, they needed to obey his word. They needed to keep it on their lips. They needed to love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength. Moses spells this out in Deuteronomy, which is a a sermon that he gives at the end of his life to his people. And he calls on the Israelites to obey God. He says in Deuteronomy 28, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, then all these curses will come on you and overtake you. And in the context of the curses that God will send on his people, we see in verse 38, you will sow much seed in the field, but you will, not, but you will harvest little because locusts will devour it. A little later in verse 42, swarms of locusts will take over all your trees and the crops of your land. And so it seems that the purpose of the locusts in the big story of the Old Testament was that it was a message that God's people had turned from him and the locusts were a sign that they needed to return and come back to relationship with the Lord. That's the message that we see in the very next book of the Uh, minor prophets, the book of Amos. So in Amos chapter 4, Amos himself says many times, uh, Amos is speaking on behalf of the Lord here to the people of Israel. He says, many times I struck your gardens and your vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me. It declares the Lord. See how the, 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 the locusts were a part of God's warning to his people that they might return to him in relationship. That's what God desired. And indeed, this is what we see in the book of Joel. Joel calls on the people to return to the Lord, to mourn the disaster, to grieve But he also summons us all the people to, in verse 13, put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offering, the drink offerings are withheld from the house of the God. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of your God. And cry out to the Lord. See, the reason that the world is out of whack is because the people are out of whack with God. See, when people are out of relationship with God, the whole world suffers. Not only are the crops destroyed, but as we read on, we see also animals suffer as well. There's environmental chaos in the world that ensures from people being out of relationship with God. Uh, The food is cut off in verse verse 16. From the house of God, the seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down. So that provision for food throughout the year has gone as well, with the storehouses being destroyed. And then in verse 18, how the cattle moan. The herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of the sheep are suffering. 
To you, Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness. The flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up. The fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. See, the cattle, the domesticated animals, and the wild animals are all out of sorts. And it stretches back to the way that the Israelites have treated God. And so Joel calls the people back to him. And back, this is the hope for, the, for restoration as people come back to the Lord, as they cry out to him. And there's a key little verse in verse 15, I think. Uh, let me read verse 15. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. The day of the Lord is near. The prophet Joel has been called the prophet of the day of the Lord. What is this day of the Lord that he's speaking about? The day of the Lord is the day when God will come into our world to establish his glorious kingdom a place where there is no more disaster, a place where there is no more famine, a place where there is blessing and prosperity and abundance and everyone worships God. God will come and establish that kingdom. That's what he will do on that day. But that will mean removing from the world all who are out of relationship with God. And in that sense, the day of the Lord is also the judgment day, what we might call the judgment day, the day when God comes to fix up things in our world and establish his glorious kingdom for all time. And so in this way, the locust plague that the people have just experienced is a message from the Lord. Turn back to me while there is still time, is what God is saying. Repent. Repent before the day of the Lord comes, before the judgment day comes. Because if you thought the locusts were bad, they are nothing compared to what will happen on that day. And that's what we see as Joel continues into chapter 2. We move from chapter 1 with the locusts into chapter 2, which is a very unusual picture uh, for us to understand. Bible scholars debate what's being pictured in chapter 2. The NIV heading, um, the translators have made a decision that it's speaking again about the army of locusts. You'll see if you've got an NIV, if you've brought your Bible, uh, there's a heading at the beginning of chapter 2, an army of locusts. But that's an interpretation. And I don't think it is an army of locusts that we have in chapter 2. There's no mention anywhere of locusts in chapter 2. What it is called in chapter 2 is in verse 11, the army of the Lord. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. What we have in chapter 2 is a picture of the army of the Lord coming down on the day of the Lord, the judgment day, to establish God's kingdom and overcome all opposition to his reign. What is this army of the Lord? Well, it may be a bit of a strange idea to us, but it's an idea that we see over and over in the Old Testament. 
In the Old Testament, God dwells in heaven. Uh, That's not what we generally see. But there is a spiritual reality behind the things that happen in this world. And in the heavens, God dwells with his heavenly host. You may have heard of the heavenly host. Another way of translating that word host is his heavenly army. It's the same words. An important title for God in the Old Testament is that he is the Lord of hosts, that he is the Lord of armies. I think in the NIV it's translated Lord Almighty, uh, that Lord of armies, the Lord of armies. We actually met um, the commander of the Lord's armies back when we were looking at the book of Joshua. I'll put this up on the PowerPoint. Uh, Back in Joshua chapter 5, just before the Israelites were going into the land of Israel... Joshua was near Jericho and he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, which was a very strange reply. You'd think he'd be for the Israelites, but he's not for the Israelites or anti the Israelites. He's actually the commander of the army of the Lord and he's now come. Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. What we see in the book of Joshua is what we see elsewhere in the Old Testament, and that is that the the armies of the Lord stand behind events in this world. When God's people obeyed in the book of Joshua, they went in and took the land because God fought for his people. When God's people disobeyed, as they did with Achan, and took some of the things that they shouldn't have taken, they were unsuccessful, and the army of the Lord was actually against his people. God's, the earthly armies of Israel were defeated because the heavenly armies weren't in support. This is a strange idea for us, isn't it? But I think this is what we see in chapter 2. Uh, the heavenly armies of the Lord, uh, Joel has a vision of them coming to earth to establish God's kingdom, to fight against God's enemies. All the enemies will be overcome. Let me read Joel 2 and see this vision that he has of this heavenly army. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Trumpets were the air raid siren of the ancient world. If you heard the trumpet blast in the city, there was danger on its way. Okay? Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. See, remember the the locusts in chapter 1 were the worst in living memory. But Joel says the army of the Lord coming on the day of the Lord is the worst thing to happen in human history. A large and mighty army comes such as never was in ancient times, nor will there ever be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. 
They the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry with a noise that, like that of chariots. They leap over mountaintops. This is why I think it's the army of the Lord, because normal human armies, chariots don't go over mountains. Chariots are limited to the plain where they can, their, 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 their wheels can run over the plains, not over mountains. Okay? These are God's heavenly army, which are not limited to the plains. They can go where they like. Here they crack like crackling fire, consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Um, uh, Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through the defences without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them the earth shakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army, his forces are beyond number and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great, it is dreadful. Who can endure it? Who can endure this mighty army of God coming to establish his kingdom? The answer is no one. No one can endure this day. If no one can endure the coming day of the Lord, the only hope is if God averts this day. And that's why Joel now again appeals to everyone to come back to the Lord, to repent. Verse 12, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your hearts. You can translate that word return as repent. Turn back to the Lord. Turn from ignoring him. With all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, rend your heart, not your garments. See, God wants the hearts of his people. Back in Deuteronomy 6, the primary command was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. It's not enough to just come and tear your garment as a symbol of your repentance, as a symbol of lamenting, of a symbol of mourning, of crying. No, you actually need the inner change, that turning back to the God, not just an external show. One of the intriguing things about the book of Joel is that the prophet never identifies any particular sins that the people are to repent of. In Hosea, they were to repent of their idolatry and making alliances with false nations. In Amos, they were guilty of turning their backs on God and false worship and mistreating the poor and the vulnerable. There were sins that were identified, but there's no particular sins in Joel. And I think that's probably for a couple of reasons. One is it makes the book universal. It applies across Israel's story in all those different situations. It's a call to return. But it also highlights that the main problem isn't so much the sins. They're the symptoms. Okay, So you get the virus, the coronavirus. It gives you the sore head and the ratchety throat. I had COVID last week. wasn't very much fun last weekend. Uh, the, 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 many of you experienced it, haven't you? The, the, the symptoms of what the problem, what we've experienced, but the virus is what's got in and done the damage. And in, in many ways, the, 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 
Israel's sins, the idolatry, the, the, um, the mistreating one another, the false worship, they were just the symptoms, but the underlying virus was the fact that they turned their backs on God. And this is what Joel sees. Come back to God. Come back to him. God wants a relationship with his people. And it's verse, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 13, gives us a really, really important statement about who God is. Chapter 2, verse 13, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. God wants relationship. You return to him, you will experience that relationship, the forgiveness, the cleansing. God wants relationship with people. That little verse there is a quote from God's uh, statement to Moses back in the book of Exodus again. We'll put this one on the PowerPoint. Um, Right after the Israelites had committed great sin in building the golden calf, God said he was going to wipe them out and start again. But Moses interceded on behalf of the people. He he prayed to the Lord for forgiveness. And then God revealed his character to Moses. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. He punishes to the third and fourth generation, but his love extends to the thousands generation. God is just. He does put things right. He, he will put things right. He does hold people to account, and yet he's also compassionate and gracious. And it's this compassion of God that the prophet Joel highlights as the reason to come back to him in the midst of the disaster. Joel emphasizes that compassionate side to God. He relents from sending calamity. Is really an application of what we saw in Exodus where it says forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Joel hopes that God might again relent and calls all the community to gather together for the pre- and for the priests to appeal to the Lord for mercy. Uh, chapter 2, verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders. Gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. There's something even more important than than marriage. Uh, Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say amongst the peoples, where is their God? See, what we see in the book of Joel is that disaster like the locust plague is God's gracious judgment. It's his compassion towards his people. It's his message that they're 
they've got time to turn back to him before that great and terrible day of the Lord, his judgment day. But one of the things we see as Christians as we read this, there's lots of differences between our time and Joel's time as well. The locusts were a specific message to the people of Israel who were living under that, what we call the Old Covenant, uh, the, the, the laws of Deuteronomy that Moses had made with the people at uh, Mount Sinai, that, that Old Covenant. We are not Israelites. We're not under the Old Covenant. Uh, if disasters operated under the Old Covenant to warn people, are there, can we draw similar um, application today? Well, as we've seen, some would say no. Uh, that article in Christianity Today. But I think that there are a number of passages in the New Testament that God still uses, that teach us that God still uses his judgments as gracious judgments. In the book of Revelation, uh, and I know the book of Revelation is difficult to understand as well, but there's, in the book of Revelation, there's seven angels with seven trumpets. And those trumpets are sounded as warnings of the coming day of the Lord, the coming judgment day. And as those trumpets are sounded in the book of Revelation, disasters come over the earth. And interestingly, those disasters include locusts. I think the book of Revelation is picking up on Joel at this point. But one of the tragic things that we see at the end of of chapter 9 of Revelation is that the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their, uh, or their thefts. The disasters that have come on the world are designed to bring people back to God or bring people to God. But in Revelation, they fail to do that. But disasters also uh, we see in, in, in Jesus' day. Uh, Jesus, in uh, Luke chapter 13, that passage we read before as well. If you've got your Bible there, Luke chapter 13, we'll um, look at that again. There were natural disasters in Jesus' day. Well, not only natural disasters, uh, acts of terrorism. Uh, there were some present at that time who uh, told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. There's an act of terror, isn't it? People died because of uh, their sacrifices and uh, being, being persecuted. And, and uh, Jesus asked, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. And then there's another scenario. Those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Uh, we're not told how it fell. Was it bad in, badly engineered? Or maybe there was an earthquake? Or uh, maybe they just didn't maintain the tower and uh, it fell and 18 people were killed. And do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Jesus says, I tell you no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Notice that Jesus makes it clear that the people who died were not worse sinners. When disaster strikes, we can't make the simple equation that that, that those who died were worse. We're not able to make that connection. 
We all deserve God's judgment on our sin. And those who die in the disasters are a warning of the disaster to come. That's what Jesus says. Repent or you too will all perish. See, God has set a day when he will judge the world. No matter how devastating a disaster may be, it's incomparable to the disaster that will come on the day of the Lord, the day when Jesus returns and establishes God's kingdom for all time. And in that sense, I think God's judgments that happen in our world now are his gracious judgments. COVID, floods, fires, they're all designed to remind us of the judgment to come. And if you're not a Christian here today, disasters are a message from God that you need to turn in repentance and faith back to him, to trust in Jesus. It helps us to understand that Jesus took the judgment of God. And more of this next week because Joel, lots of the verses in Joel are actually picked up in the New Testament and applied to what happened to Jesus on the cross where he took the judgment of God for us. He bore the penalty for our sins so that we can have life. John 3.36 is a classic verse. John 3.36 is on the PowerPoint. Uh, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. See, there's that message of hope that comes from what Jesus has accomplished. But if we are Christians, then disasters are also a message that we need to repent and live in the light of Jesus' return. They remind us that this world has been frustrated by God, that we're not living in this world as if this is heaven. We shouldn't be surprised when disaster strikes because Uh, they're part of God's plan to remind us that we're not made for this world. We're built for heaven and that we need to put our trust in him rather than in this world. And as Willard reminded us as well, they are also, disasters are an opportunity for us to remember again the coming disaster and to share that message with others that this world is, has a judgment day. God will not let evil triumph. But his delay in judgment is his patience, as Peter tells us. God doesn't want anyone to perish. And so we need to be sharing the message of forgiveness and hope that has come in Jesus. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day to turn back while there's still a chance. Let's pray that we might do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the message of Joel and the way that it reminds us of the great judgment day that is coming at Jesus' return. When you will wipe away every tear, when you will um, uh, put an end to humanity's violence towards one another, when the disputes and the troubles that we face will be no more. We long for that day and yet we know that for those who don't yet know Jesus, it will be a day of terror. 
Father, help us to come back to you. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus, that he's taken the penalty that we deserve, that we can need not fear that day. Uh, in the meantime, uh, help us to be people who hold out that message of hope to a needy world. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.